Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 43. Well, our baskets are full, to use an image from the book of Luke, from the things we have taken in so far in this book of Alma. And what a journey it has been. As we have given this great book our time and attention, good measure has been given back to us, as Luke chapter 6, verse 38 says, and it has been poured abundantly back into our baskets, pressed down and shaken together and running over. Well, as we know, we have been instructed in doctrine and admonition in the last seven chapters as Alma has counseled his sons. Then, as we look back upon the book of Alma more broadly, we can consider all that we have been blessed with as we have traveled with Alma as he left the judgment seat and began his ministry. Then we read of his mission with Amulek. Then there was the mission of the sons of Mosiah, Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni and their brethren to the Lamanite kingdom. These chapters have been so rich with content that any short description of them feels like an understatement. We gathered many spiritual treasures during that section of the book of Alma. And then, of course, there was the Zoramite mission in Antionum. Alma and Amulek's masterful sermons on the hill Oneida are still fresh in our memories. Now we move into a new section of the book of Alma, where there is a very deliberate shift in focus. Our spiritual training certainly continues as we progress through the book of Alma, but in some new and important ways. As Mormon will tell us in verses 2 and 3 of this chapter, Alma chapter 43, Now we shall say no more concerning their preaching, except that they preached the word and the truth according to the spirit of prophecy and revelation, and they preached after the holy order of God by which they were called. And now... I return to an account of the wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites in the 18th year of the reign of the judges. So, sufficiently instructed and equipped from the previous chapters of the book of Alma, it is now our task to leave the mountaintop for a time and descend into the landscape of war. This is certainly not the first account of war in the book of Alma, And more generally in the Book of Mormon, we have known that the strife that first existed within Lehi's family has unfortunately been perpetuated and attenuated throughout the timeline to the point that it became a war between nations at least as early as 2 Nephi chapter 5 when Nephi and his people left the land of Lehi's first inheritance for a new land. We later read that Nephi himself was a wielder of the sword of Laban And the same was said later, of course, of Nephi's successor, King Benjamin. This shift in focus in the book of Alma reflects a broader rhythm in life, really, that takes place for each of us across different units of time when we are blessed with moments of respite and reflection that precede the tumult of life's battlefields. Consider how this is possible each day 
when it begins with prayer, scripture study, and meditation, and how it can occur each week with the observance of the Sabbath, each month with a collective fast, and how each year is marked with celebratory seasons such as Christmas and Easter. These are recalibrating moments that provide us with the opportunity to see the forest from the trees, as it were, uh, to refill our spiritual baskets, to use that image from Luke again, or really to practice a type of what will be the ultimate manifestation of this phenomenon when we are allowed to enter into the rest of the Lord. This is something that is described very beautifully in Hebrews chapter 4. Well, between now and then, however, we are left with the need to return to the mundane after each ascent to the mountain to face the resulting post-illumination affliction that Elder Holland spoke so eloquently of in his April 2016 General Conference Address. It is inevitable that after heavenly moments in our lives, we of necessity return to earth, so to speak, where sometimes less-than-ideal circumstances again face us, said Elder Holland in that talk. Then he finished, well, then this quote finishes by him saying, We all have come down from peak experiences to deal with the regular vicissitudes of life. And so it is with this point in the book of Alma, as we leave the enlightenment of previous chapters and move into Alma chapter 43. Now, to be clear, these final chapters in Alma are far from mundane, and they certainly are enlightening. But it is also true that they do not have the spiritual and doctrinal content of the previous chapters, or at least it's not presented in the same way. These chapters will be almost relentless in their presentation of wartime strategies. They will teach us more, then, about the motives and the tactics and the machinations of the adversary. And these chapters will remind us that we are at war with Lucifer, and it began long before mortality. In this war, he is relentless in his attempts to claim souls, and the scriptures are replete with evidence of this. And uh, this was true in the Savior's ministry, and we can expect the same to be true for his modern-day church, and of course, on a personal level, the same is true for us. So as we come to the final 21 chapters of the book of Alma, war between the Nephites and the Lamanites will indeed become the main framework for the storytelling narrative. We'll explore the why of this in more detail as we go through the text and associated commentary. Before doing this, however, it's also interesting to note the literary forms that Mormon will provide for us as we begin this final segment of the book of Alma. We will see a war story in Alma chapter 43 and 44 that is a continuation of the circumstances that were related in Alma chapter 35. Mormon will introduce us to a new key figure here the chief captain of the Nephite armies, Captain Moroni. Then Alma's words will be presented for the final time in Alma chapter 45 before he, quote, departed out of the land of Zarahemla as if to go into the land of Melech and was never heard of more. Mormon's storytelling format will then continue as we resume with Alma chapter 46 where we will read of Moroni's title of liberty. And then storytelling narrative will continue from this point forward. We'll read of the almost unimaginable deceptions of Malachiah and those of his brother Amaron. Interesting breaks from this storytelling format will appear as we read actual dialogue between contending parties on the field of battle. In other words, letters are exchanged between warring leaders in Alma chapter 54. 
Here, we will read Moroni and Amaron's actual negotiation with one another as they discuss the exchange of prisoners. This is a fascinating break from the narrative. And then, more epistles will follow from this point forward. Mormon will provide us with a letter that was written from Helaman to Moroni in Alma chapters 56 through 58. This is his account of the next generation of the beloved anti-Nephi-Lehi's, or the stripling sons of the people of Ammon, and their miraculous success in battle. A suspension of Mormon storytelling format actually continues as we read Alma 60 and 61, where letters of Moroni and the Nephite chief judge Pehoran are presented to us in apparently, by the way, their original and complete form. So rather than simply describing this particular exchange in a narrative format, Mormon allows us to read their actual epistles to one another. Now for the final two chapters of Alma, Mormon will return to storytelling. Alma chapter 62 will bring us to the 31st year of the reign of the judges. Peace is established for a season in this chapter as we come to its end, and we're told that the church is put in order throughout the land, and verse 46 will say, and 47 uh, will tell us that regulations were made concerning the law. Moroni will transfer rule to his son in this chapter, Moroniha, and Helaman's death in the 30 and 5th year is recorded in the final verse of Alma, chapter 62. The final chapter of the book of Alma, chapter 63, will continue in the same manner, in a storytelling way. It records the death of Moroni and the records transfer from Shiblon to Helaman, who in this case is the son of Helaman, or in other words, the grandson of Alma. Well, just continuing for a moment with a short survey of these literary forms in the remainder of the book of Alma, in addition to these epistles and this storytelling narrative, we are treated to Mormon's editorial commentary at a few key points as well. The most noticeable instance of this, besides the and thus we see statements of chapters 46 and 50, will be his description of Moroni in Alma chapter 48, where he'll tell us in verse 17 that, quote, if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. This will certainly lead us to wonder when we come to that passage in Alma chapter 48, if Mormons named his own son, perhaps, after this great chief captain. And we'll read commentary on that when we get to that point. Now, let's narrow our focus to Alma chapter 43 for a moment before we go into a reading of the text. Perhaps the first thing to notice is that chapters 43 and 44 really could be considered one unit. Uh, They begin with a battle that began in Alma chapter 35, as I previously mentioned, and they end with a short season of peace that brings us to the end of the 18th year of the reign of the judges when we come to the end of Alma chapter 44. In this section, new characters will be introduced, uh, and specifically that'll happen in chapter 43, most notably the great chief captain Moroni. Our main characters in the Book of Mormon so far have been record keepers, prophets, kings, missionaries, and certainly family members, but kind of here's a new category, a chief captain. Now, while Moroni is certainly not the first military ruler that we have read of in the Book of Mormon, we could probably say that he is the most singular. Uh, He becomes a major figure in the story from this point in chapter 43 until his death that is related in Alma chapter 63. 
He will leave an indelible impression upon us as we move through the narrative from this point forward. And as I mentioned previously, Mormon will see to that. He'll make sure that that is the case for us. Moroni's motives in war will be shown almost immediately in this chapter, Alma chapter 43. The contrasting designs, is the word that's used, between the Lamanites and Nephites are delineated in Alma chapter 43, verses 8 and 9. For behold, his designs, and in this case it's Zarahemna that is being described, were to stir up the Lamanites to anger against the Nephites. This he did that he might usurp great power over them and also that he might gain power over the Nephites by bringing them into bondage. And now the design of the Nephites was to support their lands, and their houses, and their wives, and their children, that they might preserve them from the hands of their enemies, and also that they might preserve their rights and their privileges, yea, and also their liberty, that they might worship God according to their desires. Mormon will show us, first implicitly through Moroni's actions, and then later through providing Moroni's actual words, which we will read at the beginning of Alma chapter 44, that Moroni was a very articulate champion of this design of the Nephites. We'll see how he accomplishes these designs in this chapter by clarifying his cause, and we'll look at that carefully, and finding and implementing best practices in military endeavors. That'll be evidenced by the armor that he uses, for example, and by appealing to the heavenly perspective of a prophet of God when he goes to Alma, as he will in this chapter. So we can learn much, then, about Moroni's example as we seek to navigate through the tumult of our own battlefields of life, appealing to the scriptures for clarity of cause, for best practices, and for prophetic guidance that will one day lead us back to the rest of the Lord. Well, let's look now at the structure of this chapter before moving into a reading of the text. What we can first see in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter is that Alma and his sons continue to preach the word among the people. In other words, this is after the Zoramite mission. Uh, This is after Corianton has received his counsel and correction and doctrinal instruction from his father. And They're continuing to preach the word. So we know that that is the case, but then we can see that there will be a shift as it's explained to us in verse 2 so that Mormon is now going to emphasize other things in the narrative. In verses 3 through 4, we have a continuity piece that picks up where we left off from chapter 35 of Alma. It's the account of the wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites, and we're told how the Zoramites actually did become Lamanites and move into and invade Nephite lands. This was the fear of Nephite leaders that was expressed clear back in Alma chapter 31, and unfortunately it did come to fruition. So, in verse 4, we find how the Nephites are assembling in Jershon, and they're preparing for war. Then we see the Lamanite side of things in verses 5 and 6. They assemble and they appoint leaders, and it's noted by Mormon that Amalekites and Zoramites are in particular chosen as leaders, and this is done in the land of Antionum, and of course that's where the Zoramites lived. So this is a terrible turn here that we're seeing. Now, here is this contrasting motive section, this idea of the design of the Lamanites versus the design of the Nephites. So in verses 7 and 8, we'll read of the design of Zarahemna and the Lamanites more generally. We'll read some commentary about that too when we come. Then in verses 9 and 10, 
we'll read of the Nephite motives, that their design in going to war, uh, really it's war that has come to them, is again to preserve their rights and their privileges and their liberty. So we'll read more about that. Then in verses 11 through 13, uh, we also see that the Nephite motives are to protect the people of Ammon, and they're discussed in those three verses. It is made clear then in verses 14 and 15 that the Nephites are severely outnumbered by the Lamanites. Uh, And so their difference in cause is first delineated between the Lamanites and the Nephites, and then it's pointed out by Mormon that the Nephites are severely outnumbered. And so we're meant to see that before all of this conflict begins, and we're meant to see this contrast in causes and to see that it is their righteous cause and their appeal to the strength of the Lord that carried them through this incident in Alma chapters 43 and 44. Now, in chapter 16 and 17, Captain Moroni, or as he is called here, Chief Captain Moroni, is introduced. We find in verse 17 that he took all the command and the government of their wars, and he was only 20 and 5 years old when he was appointed chief captain. Of course, we can think about who it is that is writing this, and it's Mormon, who was even more precocious in this regard and who also assumed the the leadership position over the military when he was even younger than that. Verses 18 through 22 show us that the Nephites and the Lamanites meet for battle. And this meeting takes place at the border of Jerson. So this time has finally come. And the Lamanites have left Antionum where they were preparing, and they come to Jershon and they're ready to attack the Nephites. However, they discover that the Nephites are clad with armor. And so they, they change tack and they retreat and they go to Manti. This is clear to us as readers that they're going to Manti, but Moroni and his armies don't know where they're going when they retreat. And so it's at this point that he uses spies to find out where these armies are going. So that comes back to the idea that he did appeal to best practices in military strategy, such as armor and spies, uh, but that he also appealed to Alma in this section in verses 23 and 24 and discovers that the place for him to go is to the land of Manti. So Moroni does leave some uh, troops in Jershon uh, to prepare for the eventuality that uh, any Lamanites would still come upon Jershon. Any remnant of their armies would do that. And he prepares the people more generally in the region of Manti for battle, while also bringing his and Lehi's armies to this place to preempt the Lamanite attack. And they know what the Lamanites are going to do, again, because of reconnaissance, but also very specifically because of the guidance and perspective that's coming from Alma in this case. So we'll read all about that in verses 25 through 33. Now in verses 34 through 42, we'll see that the Lamanites are met by Moroni. So the Lamanites finally come upon the people of Manti, and to their great surprise, Uh, They are met by Moroni and Lehi's armies, and great destruction ensues. Great destruction is the term that's used. So it's a terrible battle, and the Lamanites still discover that they have to deal with a tactical gradient, we might say, that has been created between these two armies where the Nephites are clad with protective armor and the Lamanites are not. Even under these circumstances, in verses 43 through 47, 
we can see that the Lamanites fight like dragons, as Mormon tells us, but the Nephites were inspired by a better cause. So Mormon comes back around to this issue of cause and makes it clear that even though the Nephites were outnumbered, they were inspired by the Lord and were blessed by him and were justified because of this cause for which they're fighting. And so in verses 48 through 50, we find that the Nephites do rally with Moroni's words and with the Lord's help, and the Lamanites finally retreat. As the Lamanites retreat, Mormon will tell us in verses 51 through 54 that Moroni and his armies surround them uh, while they're in the act of retreating. And the Lamanites, the word that's used here is they are encircled by the Nephites. And so Moroni halts his own attack on the Lamanites at this point. It is here where the chapter ends, and we will read Moroni's words to Zarahemna and his troops as we open um, Alma chapter 44. So we'll come back to that. For now, we'll return to verse 1 for a reading. Now before doing so, and I don't mean to create a bait-and-switch scenario here, but before going to verse 1, I do have some commentary from Ogden and Skinner, and then from McConkie and Millet, and from one other source that I'd like to include here that will act something like an addendum to the introduction to this chapter that will talk especially about the way in which the Book of Alma takes a turn and moves into an account of wars. So first, Ogden and Skinner, they say an account of wars in Alma chapters 43 through 62. It sounds like a lot of wars, but there were not as many wars in the Book of Mormon lands during any one time period as in the last 100 years of United States history. It is a spiritual account, too. The Book of Mormon was written for us. Not counting the Book of Ether, 50% of the Book of Mormon is devoted to 12% of the time period involved, just before the coming of Christ. The books of Alma, Helaman, and the first part of 3 Nephi are the closest parallel to our time and situation in the last days. President Ezra Taft Benson defined the purpose of these war chapters, quote, In the Book of Mormon, we find a pattern for preparing for the second coming. A major portion of the book centers on the few decades just prior to Christ's coming to America. By careful study of that time period, we can determine why some were destroyed in the terrible judgments that preceded his coming, and what brought others to stand at the temple in the land of Bountiful and thrust their hands into the wounds of his hands and feet. From the Book of Mormon, we learn how disciples of Christ live in times of war. President Benson said that in his Witness and a Warning. Ogden and Skinner continue, The opposing sides had various reasons for the continual warring. The Lamanites' reasons were anger, hatred, and the desire to usurp power. The Nephites' reasons were to preserve homes, wives, children, rights, religion, and freedom of worship. And now this from McConkie and Millet. Given the constraints of space on Mormon's abridgment of the large plates, why would he devote so much time to a discussion of war? Though the list below is by no means exhaustive, we might consider the following important lessons. 1. The Christian's attitude towards war. War is basically selfish, President David O. McKay stated. Its roots feed in the soil of envy, hatred, desire for domination. Its fruit, therefore, is always bitter. War impels you to hate your enemies. The Prince of Peace says, love your enemies. War says, curse them that curse you. The Prince of Peace says, pray for them that curse you. War says, injure and kill them that hate you. 
The risen Lord says, do good to them that hate you. 2. The importance of righteous military leaders. The Nephite military leaders were not bloodthirsty. They hated war and hated the thought of shedding the blood of their brethren, and appointed, save it were in their times of wickedness, someone that had the spirit of revelation and also prophecy. It says that in 3 Nephi 3, verse 19. 3. Our attitude towards constituted government. The Lord has instructed us that Latter-day Saints in the United States are to be subject to the powers of government, though some of Moroni's actions might be offensive to the more pacifistic of this modern age. He acted in harmony with what he felt was his and others' duty to God, even to the point of compelling dissenters to take up arms in support of the government during war. 4. The power and influence of a righteous home. Because righteousness was central to the maintenance of the government, proper training in the home, in the family setting, was absolutely necessary. This was illustrated beautifully in the lives of Helaman's 2,000 stripling warriors. 5. A person's external circumstances need not determine his attitude or his faithfulness. One of the vital messages of the Book of Mormon is that one can remain untainted from the sins of the world, no matter what the extent of the degradation of the day. 6. Why God allows the righteous to be slain. War is ugly. Its effects are poignant and painful. Its reach is devastating. It rushes into premature death a great many of the sons and daughters of God. 7. A prophetic pattern of what is to come. Though it is not pleasant to entertain such a thought, it may be that the chapters on warfare have been preserved to prepare us for things to come. Again, that comes from McConkie and Millet's doctrinal commentary on the Book of Mormon. Now, here's a very helpful segment from Douglas Phillips. It comes from the I Have a Question column of the January 1978 Enzyme, and Thomas Arvaletta includes this in his Book of Mormon Study Guide. Phillips says, If we today feel that Mormon's inclusion of lengthy military accounts is somehow not in keeping with the sacred and religious purpose of the Book of Mormon, then we must remind ourselves that he, unlike modern historians, had a theological or religious concept of history. In his view, war was not to be explained merely in terms of political, economic, or racial causes and effects, but was rooted in moral, spiritual, and social problems and unrighteousness. But we must be careful not to overstate Mormon's preoccupation with war. Although he frequently mentions its occurrence in the various periods of Nephite history, he judiciously limits himself to recounting in detail only a few of the many accounts that were at his disposal. Except for his rehearsal of the 63 years of war in his own lifetime, with the full account of the causes of war, preparations, battles, retreats, and further battles, including the final one at Camorra with its losses, Mormon devotes most of his interest in military accounts and wars to the period of 75 B.C. to A.D. 25, and in particular to the 14 years of Lamanite wars at the time of Moroni, which fills some 56 pages in the Book of Alma. It was natural that Mormon should have been attracted to Captain Moroni, the brilliant, energetic, selfless, patriotic, and God-fearing hero who had been instrumental in preserving the Nephite nation. So great was his admiration, it may be more than simple coincidence that he gave his son the name Moroni. In Mormon's eyes, the peaceful days under Moroni were a golden age in Nephite history. But the military exploits of Moroni seemed to have particularly interested Mormon. With great care, he recounted Moroni's courage and patriotism in the desperate military and political state of affairs arising from Lamanite invasion, from without and sedition from within. 
his efforts in mobilization and defense, his own and his lieutenant's brilliant tactics, their sharply fought battles with frightful losses, and their miraculous victories. But throughout his account, we perceive the hand of God making use of devout and just military leaders and statesmen in preserving the righteous. Now truly moving back to verse 1 in a reading of this chapter, uh, we can remember just where we left off. We were uh, with Alma as he was speaking to his sons for these uh, previous seven chapters. And prior to that, we were just coming to the end of the Zoramite mission, and we're worried about the way in which the Zoramites might now combine with the Lamanites. So that's what we're thinking about as we come into verse 1. And now it came to pass that the sons of Alma did go forth among the people to declare the word unto them. And Alma also himself could not rest, and he also went forth. This uh, could not rest phrase is interesting. And Ogden and Skinner said, When we are desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature, and we cannot bear that any human soul should perish, remember that's how the sons of Mosiah were described in Mosiah chapter 28, verse 3, and the same most certainly Um, pertains to Alma here. The same will be written of us. We had to go forth and share the gospel. We could not rest. I think it's great at this point, since the previous four chapters were all about Coriantan, to wonder if Coriantan was among these who could not rest and who went forth among the people and preached. Uh, This from Brent Gardner on that question. Tellingly, Coriantan was obviously included with the other two sons of Alma who began preaching. We must conclude, therefore, that Coriantan truly repented, followed his father's admonitions, embraced this new call to the ministry. Confirmation of this conclusion is that he joined Helaman and Shiblon in preaching God's word. And that's recorded, as we've discussed previously in other chapters, in Alma chapter 49. Verse 2, here's the shift. Now, we shall say no more concerning their preaching, except that they preached the word and the truth according to the spirit of prophecy and revelation, and they preached after the holy order of God by which they are called. The Mormon is very careful here to carry this thread and idea of priesthood authority forward. Uh, he is combining the idea that they preached after the order of the, of the holy order of God, in addition to the fact that they did so through prophecy and revelation. Lee Donaldson has written, The essence of the book of Alma is captured when Moroni writes, And now as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which is just. Yea, it had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else. That came from Alma chapter 31 verse 5. The first two-thirds of the book of Alma illustrates the power of the word. The last third of the book portrays the great wars and the effect of the sword upon the Nephites. The two ways are masterfully contrasted. The word is taught and then comes the sword. The word of the gospel must be preached in all the world before the final sword of destruction. Now as we come to verse 3, if we're thinking about this way in which the Zoramites combined with the Lamanites at the end of Alma chapter 35, then we're moving right into this next event in the narrative in verse 3. So it's a continuity piece. And now I return to an account of the wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites in the 18th year of the reign of the judges. So that uh, deliberate shift is apparent here in verse 3, now that Mormon is returning to an account of the wars, and now focusing in on that. Uh, To that, Ogden and Skinner have written Alma chapter 43, verse 3, through Alma chapter 49, verse 29, covers two Nephite wars, thus indicating the intense interest of Mormon, 
the compiler and abridger of the records until about 3 AD 385 in the subject of warfare. Why? Because his own period was one of war. He was a military man and a prophet like Captain Moroni, and Alma prophesied of Mormon's own day, as had Nephi. The Book of Mormon was written for our day, and we must learn how to live righteously and optimistically even in times of war. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf declared, I have seen enough ups and downs throughout my life to know that winter will surely give way to the warmth and hope of a new spring. I am optimistic about the future. Here is one more piece of commentary on this section of war and this shift that we're seeing. And this is from the Book of Mormon Institute manual, and I I could have read this earlier with those other segments, but it goes well here too uh, with verse 3. So again from the Institute manual. At this point in the Book of Alma, chapters 43 through 62, Mormon alerted the reader that he would return to an account of the wars. Some people wonder why the Book of Mormon contains so much about war. President Ezra Taft Benson stated that from the Book of Mormon, we learn how disciples of Christ live in times of war. Since Mormon saw our day and knew we would live in a time of wars and rumors of wars, he included how to live righteously during these times. Many Latter-day Saints have been and will be involved in military conflicts. Look for the gospel principles Mormon included in these war chapters. Mormon revealed the tremendous suffering caused by conflict and also explained why war may be necessary in the defense of life and liberty. Both Mormon and modern prophets have described circumstances when war is justified. President Gord B. Hinckley related the heavenly sorrow that accompanies such events, even when wars are justified. Quote, I think our Father in Heaven must have wept as He looked down upon His children through the centuries, as they have squandered their divine birthright in ruthlessly destroying one another. Unquote. The Nephites and Captain Moroni showed the proper attitude toward war and bloodshed. At the end of World War II, the First Presidency issued the following statement, clarifying the Church's position on war. Quote, Members must give allegiance to their sovereign and render it loyal service when called thereto. This includes military service. But the Church itself as such has no responsibility for these policies, as to which it has no means of doing more than urging its members fully to render that loyalty to their country and to free institutions which the loftiest patriotism calls for. There is an obligation running from every citizen or subject to the state. This obligation is voiced in that article of faith which declares, quote, We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. Obedient to these principles, the members of the church have always felt under obligation to come to the defense of their country when a call to arms was made. Thus, the church is, and must be, against war. It cannot regard war as a righteous means of settling international disputes. These should and could be settled, the nations agreeing, by peaceful negotiation and adjustment. But the church membership are citizens or subjects of sovereignties over which the church has no control. When, therefore, constitutional law, obedient to these principles, calls the manhood of the church into the armed service of any country to which they owe allegiance, their highest civic duty requires that they meet that call. If, hearkening to that call and obeying those in command over them, they shall take the lives of those who fight against them, that will not make of them murderers. That First Presidency message was written under the leadership of Heber J. Grant, by the way. That's when he was the prophet, and his counselors were J. Reuben Clark Jr. and David O. McKay. Now this simple verse, in verse 4, which also fills us with some dread, For behold, it came to pass that the Zoramites became Lamanites. 
Therefore, in the commencement of the 18th year of the people of the Nephites, we saw that the Lamanites were coming upon them. So now our concept of Lamanites has expanded to include these Zoramites that we learned so much about previously and who were not just errant in their beliefs, but they were very malicious in their execution. So these Lamanites certainly include these Zoramites. They were coming upon them, therefore they made preparations for war, yea, they gathered together their armies in the land of Jershon. Ogden and Skinner say of this verse that the Lamanites began to grow in numbers and strength, intimating that only righteousness and the power of God could account for any kind of victory by the Nephites over the Lamanites. That contrast will become even more clear as we read through this chapter. Verse 5, now we read about the way in which these Lamanites are going to assemble and appoint leaders among these, again, malicious and calculating Zoramites. And it came to pass that the Lamanites came with their thousands, and they came into the land of Antionum. So that's a major event. We can think about the way that these few missionaries came into Antionum from the Nephite side to preach the gospel to them and to bring to Christ any who were willing to to come to Christ. They ultimately uh, went to the land of Jershon. Uh, So that's the land of Antionum. And now we can see that this Nephite land is being not invaded because now it has been made into a base of operations. And for the first time that we can see in the Book of Mormon narrative, the Nephite armies are passing through that wilderness border into the greater land of Zarahemla and actually occupying one of their lands. So this should fill us with dread, this eventuality that's happening here in verse 5. So they come into the land of Antionum, which is the land of the Zoramites, And a man by the name of Zarahemna was their leader. Verse 6, And now as the Amalekites were of a more wicked and murderous disposition than the Lamanites were, in and of themselves, therefore Zarahemna appointed chief captains over the Lamanites, and they were all Amalekites and Zoramites. So it seems contextually here that Zarahemna was a Zoramite. This is yet one more riff on the same theme that those uh, Nephite defectors who went to join the Lamanites were even more malicious than the Lamanites. Moroni will comment on that again later, and he did, excuse me, Mormon will comment on that later, and he did the same thing when Alma and Amulek were in Ammonihah. We will soon learn of a new character, and his name is Amalickiah. And something kind of subtle has happened in the storytelling narrative earlier where we've been introduced to another group of Nephite dissenters who apparently were after the order of Nehor, and we talked about them during the Ammonihah phase of the Alma story, and they're called Amalekites, and they're not related to the Amalekiah that we're about to read of uh, when we come into Alma chapter 47 in particular. The Amalekites kind of appear in the narrative without explanation, but we do kind of learn that they're from the order of Nehor. Uh, here's something from Thomas Arvaleta to help us appreciate who the Amalekites are, because again, we're being told that there were two uh, Nephite dissenter groups that could be found among the Lamanites, and they were Amalekites and Zoramites. The Amalekites were Nephites who separated themselves from the Nephites and were described as more hardened than the Lamanites. That description took place in Alma chapter 21, verse 3. And during Nephite-Lamanite wars, the Amalekites were appointed captains because of murderous dispositions. They helped build the city Jerusalem. And remember, this is the city Jerusalem that Aaron was going into after he and Ammon went their separate ways. And Ammon went into the land of Ishmael, and Aaron went into the land of Jerusalem. So 
That's the city that was built by Amalekites. The Amalekites were after the order of Nehors and thus rejected Christ in the faithful tradition of the Nephite fathers. So this paints a picture for us of a Nephite army that has come into Antionum, a land and city that were within the greater Nephite kingdom or the greater Nephite country, we might say, and that then they were appointing leaders who were uh, mostly Nephites. They were Zoramites and Amalekites. Now verse 7, we'll come into the design of Zarahemna here. Now this he did that he might preserve their hatred towards the Nephites. So that's the specific stated reason for having these Nephites as chief captains over the Lamanite armies, just in case the Lamanites themselves uh, weren't hardened enough in their hatred towards the Nephites that he might bring them into subjection to the accomplishment of his designs. For behold, his designs were to stir up the Lamanites to anger against the Nephites. This he did, that he might usurp great power over them, and also that he might gain power over the Nephites to bring them into bondage. This verse deserves careful thought, I think. It tells us that the anger of the Lamanites towards the Nephites was not necessarily coming from any specific circumstances in their own personal lives. And so in lieu of this, these Zoramite and Amalekite leaders, especially under Zarahemna's leadership, their design was to stir these Lamanites up so that they would be angry towards the Nephites. That's a very insightful thing that's happening there. And then notice that Zarahemna is doing this so that he can usurp great power over who? Well, you would guess at first pass that that's over the Nephites that he's about to go against. But it seems at a closer reading that it's actually power over the Lamanite armies that he is allied with. And that this means of, um, or this, this hatred that he is stirring them up to is a means for him to gain power over his own armies. And then ultimately, as the verse says, over the Nephites. And by bringing all of them into bondage, and the word bondage is uh, very curious there as well. Thomas Arvaletta points this distinction out as well and says a quick reading of these verses might give the impression that the them Zarahemna wanted to bring into subjection to usurp power over referred to the Nephites. Actually, and that part is true towards the end of the verse, but actually, as Valletta points out, Zarahemna wanted power over the Lamanites so he could use them to conquer the Nephites. So uh, now this from the Book of Mormon Institute manual, the Zoramites once belonged to the Nephite nation. Due to pride, however, the Zoramites became Lamanites. Before their defection, Nephite leaders rightly feared that the Zoramites might enter into an alliance with the Lamanites, thus placing the Nephite nation at risk. In order to prevent this mass defection, Alma led a mission to reclaim the Zoramites, many of whom had already abandoned the true faith. Even though some of the Zoramites were restored to the faith, the majority were angry and began to mix with the Lamanites and stir them up in preparations for war. Lamanite war leaders appointed more bloodthirsty Zoramites and Amalekites as chief captains in an effort to gain an advantage over the Nephites. The Zoramites invited the Lamanite hordes to move in and occupy their country as the first major move against the Nephites. That, of course, is reference to them coming into Antionum. At their head came the Lamanite commander-in-chief, the Amalekite Zarahemla. Now, they're, they're suggesting here that Zarahemla was an Amalekite. The Amalekites were Nephite dissenters of an earlier day, and like most dissenters, were more bitter against the Nephites and of a more wicked and more murderous disposition than the Lamanites were. 
Zarahemla had seen to it that all the key commands in the army had gone to the Amalekites like himself or to equally ferocious Zoramites. Now returning to verse 9, we'll begin to read about the Nephite side of things. And now the design of the Nephites was to support their lands and their houses and their wives and their children, that they might preserve them from the hands of their enemies, and also that they might preserve their rights and their privileges, yea, and also their liberty, that they might worship God according to their desires. So we can see this, that in this, the Nephites were justified in going to war under these particular circumstances. Uh, President David O. McKay once said, There are two conditions which may justify a truly Christian man to enter, mind you, I say enter, not begin, a war. One, an attempt to dominate and deprive another of his free agency, and two, loyalty to his country. Possibly there is a third, defense of a weak nation that is being unjustly crushed by a strong, ruthless one. Paramount among these reasons, of course, is the defense of man's freedom. An attempt to rob man of his free agency caused dissension even in heaven. To deprive an intelligent human being of his free agency is to commit the crime of the ages. So with these thoughts in mind, we come to verse 10. For they knew that if they should fall into the hands of the Lamanites, that whosoever should worship God in spirit and in truth and the true and living God, the Lamanites would destroy. Of course, we know that from previous history. They have certainly been brazen enough to do that in the past. Um, And in fact, it wasn't even Lamanites that did that uh, during the the Ammonihah episode in Alma chapter 16. But instead, it was the Amalekites who stood at at the head of this army now. Okay, verse 11. Yea, and they also knew the extreme hatred of the Lamanites towards their brethren, who were the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi, who were called the people of Ammon. And they would not take up arms, yea, they had entered into a covenant, and they would not break it. Therefore, if they should fall into the hands of the Lamanites, they would be destroyed. So now we're moving into this three-verse section, where as we continue to talk about the Nephite motives in all of this, uh, they very much wanted to protect the people of Ammon. Verse 12, And the Nephites would not suffer that they should be destroyed. Therefore they gave them lands for their inheritance. And the people of Ammon did give unto the Nephites a large portion of their substance to support their armies. So there's some reciprocity here happening between these pacifistic uh, people of Ammon and the Nephites. And of course, we know the reason for their pacifism. It it runs much deeper than that. And we learned about that um, after Ammon brought these people into the land of Jershon, actually before as well. Verse 13 continues, And thus the Nephites were compelled alone to withstand against the Lamanites, who were a compound of Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael and all those who had descended from the Nephites, who were Amalekites and Zoramites and the descendants of the priests of Noah. Now, those descendants were as numerous nearly as as were the Nephites, and thus the Nephites were obliged to contend with their brethren even unto bloodshed. So we're not talking about the Lamanites here, we're only talking about descendants who had defected. In other words, the Nephites are truly and completely outnumbered. The uh, Book of Mormon Institute manual says the number of Nephite dissenters who became Lamanites was almost as large as the number of Nephites who remained true. This large number combined with the Lamanite armies placed the Nephites at a serious numerical disadvantage. Relying on their faith, however, the Nephites trusted that God would strengthen them during their battles against overwhelming odds, just as he had done for Gideon's army, Elisha, King Benjamin, and Alma. Verse 15, And it came to pass, 
As the armies of the Lamanites had gathered together in the land of Antionum, behold, the armies of the Nephites were prepared to meet them in the land of Jershon. Now, before we come into that meeting of these two armies in verse 18, Mormon will provide us with a short aside here in verses 16 and 17, where he will introduce Chief Captain Moroni. Now, the leader of the Nephites, or the man who had been appointed to be the chief captain over the Nephites, now the chief captain took the command of all the armies of the Nephites, and his name was Moroni. And Moroni took the command and the government of their wars, and he was only twenty and five years old when he was appointed chief captain over the armies of the Nephites. What it is about Moroni and what it was that he had done previously to attain unto such a rank is only left to our imaginations. But it's probably not an understatement to say that he was a great prodigy. Or, excuse me, that would be an overstatement to say that he was a great prodigy. Uh, Here's something from a Book of Mormon Central article called Why Did Mormons See Captain Moroni as a Hero? Moroni, only 25 years old, was appointed leader over the Nephites and immediately proved his ability by equipping his men with armor and unexpected innovation and for years outmaneuvered his enemies with superior tactics. Moroni insisted that his men fight in honor, fight with honor in order to qualify for the Lord's blessing of strength during battle. Mormon's placement of Moroni gives the reader a striking contrast to the differences between wicked Amalickiah and the righteous Captain Moroni. Mormon, the warrior historian prophet who wrote the majority of the narrative contained in the Book of Alma, had much to say about Moroni, the young chief captain over the Nephite armies. Mormon was writing nearly four centuries after the events of the so-called war chapters in the second half of the Book of Alma. It seemed that Mormon had many records from which to draw his history. However, he decided to make the figure of Chief Captain Moroni one of his main focuses. The heroic acts of Chief Captain Moroni are discussed in nearly 20 chapters in the Book of Alma. In Alma chapters 46 through 48 especially, readers can perceive that Mormon holds this Moroni in very high regard and considers him an example that all men should emulate. Starting in Alma chapter 46, Mormon clearly attempts to contrast Moroni and his archenemy Amalickiah, presenting each figure as the antithesis of the other. Now, this aside is done, and we come back to verse 18, and these armies will meet just outside the borders of Jershon. And it came to pass that he met the Lamanites in the borders of Jershon. And the pronoun he here is used, of course, with respect to Moroni, and Moroni uh, and Amalickiah later, it'll be like this too. Their first names are used to represent the entire army that backs them. And he met the Lamanites in the borders of Jershon, and his people were armed with swords and with scimitars and all manner of weapons of war. And when the armies of the Lamanites saw that the people of Nephi, or that Moroni, had prepared his people with breastplates and arm shields, yea, and also shields to defend their heads, and also they were dressed with thick clothing. Now, the army of Zarahemna was not prepared with any such thing. They had only their swords and their scimitars, their bows and their arrows, their stones and their slings, and they were naked, save it were a skin which was girded about their loins, yea, all were naked, save it were the Zoramites and the Amalekites. We can uh, consider the obvious meaning and the obvious thing that's happening here too, but can also remember that this covenant-keeping editor and record-keeper Mormon had other, um, there are other scriptural implications um, between being naked and being clothed, and uh, surely he was aware of those as he's writing this. 
Verse 21, but they were not armed with breastplates nor shields. Therefore, they were exceedingly afraid of the armies of the Nephites because of their armor, notwithstanding their number being so much greater than the Nephites. Monty S. Nyman has written, Preparation is the mark of a good leader. To be prepared requires anticipation of the future, and Captain Moroni was always prepared for war against the Lamanites. As the account continues, the Lamanites copy the Nephites' innovative methods, but Captain Moroni was a step ahead and always prepared with some new methods of defense that the Lamanites had not anticipated. On the other hand, the Lamanites still used their basic age-old customs of warfare. They relied on the arm of human strength, while Captain Moroni relied on the Lord. Verse 22, Behold, now it came to pass that they durst not come against the Nephites in the borders of Jershon, in other words, Zarahemna and his armies. Therefore they departed out of the land of Antionum into the wilderness, and took their journey round about in the wilderness, away by the head of the river Sidon, that they might come into the land of Manti and take possession of that land. For they did not suppose that the armies of Moroni would know whither they had gone. So the Lamanites, under Zarahemna's leadership, decide, even though they so greatly outnumber the Nephites, uh, they decide to do something different when they see that the Laman- or that the Nephites are clad in their armor. I think it's also a very interesting thing here to see how the land of Jershon gets spared. And it's kind of a sacred, consecrated refuge for so many people, and it will be again later in the narrative. And at this point, it is not spoiled by warfare. So Zarahemna seemingly rightfully supposes that uh, Moroni and his armies will not know where he went. Um, Of course, we find that Moroni does learn where he went as we move on in the narrative, But he introduces the land Manti here. This is not the first time that we've read of Manti. And it's it's sad to us that these Lamanite armies are now going to come into that land. I believe the first time we learned of the city of Manti or heard of that name was when Alma was journeying southward from the land of Gideon. Remember, we love and know Gideon because that's when in Alma chapter 7, the people were truly receptive to his message, so much so that he was able to say uh, so many incredible messianic things. So after his mission with uh, Amalek was complete in Ammonihah, we find as Alma 17 opens up that Alma is traveling southward from Gideon, and we learn there that it was Manti that he was headed towards. So that's the first time we learned about Manti. And of course, then Alma runs into the sons of Mosiah in that episode. So now fast forward and uh, here the the land of Manti figures in again. And this time, this is where Zarahemna and the Lamanites are retreating to, and they're going to attack this land. Before moving into the way that this plays out and how it is that Moroni discovers this Lamanite plan, here's commentary from the Institute Manual that um, talks about this protective armor and, and kind of applies it to modern times that Moroni equipped his soldiers with. Captain Moroni provided his army with protective armor, which made a significant difference in the battles against their enemies. President Harold B. Lee explained one way that we could apply these verses to our lives today. Quote, we have the four parts of the body that the Apostle Paul said or saw to be the most vulnerable to the powers of darkness, the loins typifying virtue or chastity, the heart typifying our conduct, our feet, our goals or objective in life, and finally our head, our thoughts. We should have our loins girt about with truth. What is truth? Truth, the Lord said, was knowledge of things as they are, things as they were, and things as they are to come. That's a statement out of 
Doctrine and Covenants, section 93, verse 24. Our loins shall be girt about with truth, the prophet said. And the heart, what kind of a breastplate shall protect our conduct in life? We shall have over our hearts a breastplate of righteousness. Well, having learned truth, we have a measure by which we can judge between right and wrong, and so our conduct will always be gauged by that thing which we know to be true. Our breastplate to cover our conduct shall be the breastplate of righteousness. By what shall we protect our feet, or by what shall we gauge our objectives or our goals in life? Your feet should be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. A statement out of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. And then finally, the helmet of salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from death and from sin. Well, now the Apostle Paul had his armored man holding in his hand a shield and in his other hand a sword, which were the weapons of those days. The shield was the shield of faith, and the sword was the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I can't think of any more powerful weapons than faith and a knowledge of the Scriptures in the which are contained the Word of God. One so armored and one so prepared with those weapons is prepared to go out against the enemy. So Moroni had prepared his armies in that way, seeking out the best practices of the day uh, for uh, protecting their bodies. Now he will appeal to other best practices through reconnaissance and spying, and then also uh, through appealing to a prophet. So verse 23, But it came to pass, as soon as they had departed into the wilderness, Moroni sent spies into the wilderness to watch their camp. And Moroni also, knowing of the prophecies of Alma, sent certain men unto him, desiring him that he should inquire of the Lord whither the armies of the Nephites should go to defend themselves against the Lamanites. And it came to pass that the word of the Lord came unto Alma. And Alma informed the messengers of Moroni that the armies of the Lamanites were marching round about in the wilderness, that they might come over into the land of Manti, that they might commence an attack upon the weaker part of the people. And those messengers went and delivered the message unto Moroni. This is a fascinating thing to consider, that Alma's prophetic gift was used in this way. And Marion G. Romney once said that Alma not only learned gospel principles and doctrines by faith, he also received information on current events. This is certainly the salient feature of these two verses, but it it is of interest to see that Moroni used every means available uh, to him to find out what the Lamanites were doing. And so it also says that he used spies that went uh, after the Lamanites to figure out where they're going. Now, verse 25. Now, Moroni, leaving a part of his army in the land of Jershon, lest by any means a part of the Lamanites should come into that land and take possession of the city, took the remaining part of his army and marched over into the land of Manti. President Spencer W. Kimball once said, Let us hearken to those we sustain as prophets and seers, as well as the other brethren, as if our eternal life depended upon it, because it does. In this case, of course, we have an instance where someone's temporal life depended on it as well. Verse 26, And he caused that all the people in that quarter of the land should gather themselves to battle against the Lamanites. So he's calling upon all the people. There's no, uh, there's, there's nothing more nuanced about it in the text here. All the people in that quarter of the land. So that would be in addition to the armies that had come to Manti to defend it. To defend their lands and their country, their rights and their liberties, Therefore, they were prepared against the time of the coming of the Lamanites. We'll read of an incident, of course, in Alma chapter 46, where Alma, or, or, where Moroni uh, creates the title of liberty and goes about and motivates the people. But we can tell that he was doing something similar here when he went to Manti. 
he must have rallied the people that lived in that quarter and reminded them of their lands and their country and their rights and their liberties. Verse 27, And it came to pass that Moroni caused that his army should be secreted in the valley which was near the bank of the river Sidon, which was on the west of the river Sidon in the wilderness. And Moroni placed spies round about that he might know when the camp of the Lamanites should come. And now, as Moroni knew the intention of the Lamanites, that it was their intention to destroy their brethren or to subject them and bring them into bondage that they might establish a kingdom unto themselves over all the land. In other words, the Lamanites had expansion on their minds. Amalekiah will make this clear later. Verse 30, And he also, knowing that it was the only desire of the Nephites to preserve their lands and their liberty and their church, Therefore he thought it no sin that he should defend them by stratagem. Therefore he found by his spies which course the Lamanites were to take. McConkie and Millet have written, The Nephite military leaders were not bloodthirsty. They hated war and hated the thought of shedding the blood of their brethren. They utilized clever strategy regularly, not only to win the war more rapidly, but also to save lives on both sides. Later in the story, Mormon points out that it was the custom among all the Nephites to appoint for their chief captains, save it were in their times of wickedness, someone that had the spirit of revelation and also prophecy. That's a segment of the commentary I read earlier from McConkie and Millet. Verse 31, Therefore he divided his army and brought a part over into the valley and concealed them on the east and on the south of the hill Ripla. There's a, a new proper noun for us as well, a new place, the hill Ripla. And the remainder he concealed in the West Valley on the west of the river Sidon, and so down into the borders of the land of Manti. And thus having placed his army according to his desire, he was prepared to meet them. So again, we can see here in verse 33, that kind of brings a a conclusion to the thought. Moroni did some very specific things to prepare for the Lamanite onslaught. He placed his army in certain spots that were very strategically located, So it says, once he has placed his army according to his desire, he was prepared to meet them. That's insightful. Now here is the meeting and where great destruction will ensue. The fighting that was anticipated outside of Jershon finally takes place here in verses 34 through 42. And it came to pass that the Lamanites came up on the north of the hill where a part of the army of Moroni was concealed. And as the Lamanites had passed the hill Ripla and came into the valley, and began to cross the river Sidon, the army which was concealed on the south of the hill, which was led by a man whose name was Lehi, and he led his army forth and encircled the Lamanites about on the east in their rear. A new character there, of course, Lehi. And it came to pass that the Lamanites, when they saw the Nephites coming upon them in their rear, turned them about and began to contend with the army of Lehi. And the work of death commenced on both sides, but it was more dreadful on the part of the Lamanites, For their nakedness was exposed to the heavy blows of the Nephites with their swords and their scimitars, which brought death at almost every stroke. Remember, the Lamanites were aware of the Nephites' armor, but they had already gone through their phase of preparation while they were in the land of Antionum. By the time they met the Nephites on the outside of the land of Jershon, they had simply to retreat. There was no time for them to design and make armor. And so they're still without armor as they meet the Nephites outside of Manti. Verse 38, While on the other hand, there was now and then a man fell among the Nephites by their swords and the loss of blood, they being shielded from the more vital parts of the body, 
or the more vital parts of the body being shielded from the strokes of the Lamanites by their breastplates and their arm shields and their headplates, and thus the Nephites did carry on the work of death among the Lamanites. They're terribly outnumbered, but they're protected with armor, which we've spoken of at length. They were bolstered by stratagem and um, best practices of the time, and of course the, the prophetic gift of Alma as well. And in addition to all of this, they are emboldened by a righteous cause. So that's the difference between these two warring parties. Verse 39, And it came to pass that the Lamanites became frightened because of the great destruction among them, even until they began to flee towards the river Sidon. They would have been surprised as well. Verse 40, And they were pursued by Lehi and his men, and they were driven by Lehi into the waters of Sidon, and they crossed the waters of Sidon. And Lehi retained his armies upon the bank of the river Sidon so that they could not cross. And it came to pass that Moroni and his armies met the Lamanites in the valley on the other side of the river Sidon and began to fall upon them and slay them. And the Lamanites did flee again before them towards the land of Manti, and they were met again by the armies of Moroni. So now the fighting continues in verse 43. Now in this case the Lamanites did fight exceedingly, yea, never had the Lamanites been known to fight with such exceedingly great strength and courage, no, not even from the beginning. We can see that in most times past, the Lamanites' hatred was really fueled by a grievance narrative and not from more proximate interactions with the Nephites. They lived in separate lands. But now the Lamanites are fighting as they never have before because they are in immediate danger and the Nephites are actually falling upon them. Even though the strength and courage in question here in verse 43 has to do with the Lamanites, it's a point at which we can pause and talk about these two words which are often used together in the scriptures. This is something that President Russell M. Nelson has observed. He said, A theme in the scriptures requisite for significant accomplishment is difficult to summarize in one word, so I shall link two to describe it, strength and courage. Repeatedly, scriptures yoke these attributes of character together, especially when difficult challenges are to be conquered. And President Nelson notes that these words have been used together in Deuteronomy and Joshua, uh, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Psalms, Alma, of course. And in each of these listed books, there are, well, most of them at least, there are several references. Verse 44, And they were inspired by the Zoramites and the Amalekites, who were their chief captains and leaders, and by Zarahemna, who was their chief captain, or their chief leader and commander, Yea, they did fight like dragons, and many of the Nephites were slain by their hands. Yea, for they did smite in two many of their headplates, and they did pierce many of their breastplates, and they did smite off many of their arms, and thus the Lamanites did smite in their fierce anger. Nevertheless, the Nephites were inspired by a better cause, for they were not fighting for monarchy nor power, but they were fighting for their homes and their liberties, their wives and their children, and for their all for their rites of worship and their church. And they were doing that which they felt was the duty which they owed to their God. For the Lord had said unto them, and also unto their fathers, that, quote, Inasmuch as ye are not guilty of the first offense, neither the second, ye shall not suffer yourselves to be slain by the hands of your enemies. Here, Mormon seems to be quoting passages, perhaps from the brass plates, that we don't have. We have similar expressions in Alma chapter 48 later, and in Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 98. Uh, And in verse 27, he does the same thing. And again, the Lord has said that ye shall defend your families even unto bloodshed. 
Therefore, for this cause were the Nephites contending with the Lamanites to defend themselves and their families and their lands, their country and their rights, and their religion. This moves us into some commentary uh, from the Institute Manual and from Monty S. Nyman about this idea of contending in war under these circumstances and its justification, something that we have talked about previously, but a slightly different view here. Human life is sacred. Taking an innocent life is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. One may justifiably take another's life, however, when defending oneself, family, religion, or country, or freedom. President Gordon B. Hinckley helped explain the concept of war and bloodshed. Quote, when war raged between the Nephites and the Lamanites, the record states that the Nephites were inspired by a better cause, for they were not fighting for power, but they were fighting for their homes and their liberties, their wives and their children, and their all, yea, for their rights of worship and their church. And they were doing that which they felt was the duty which they owed to their God. The Lord counseled them, defend your families even unto bloodshed. It is clear from these and other writings that there are times and circumstances when nations are justified, in fact, have an obligation to fight for family, for liberty, and against tyranny, threat, and oppression. We are a freedom-loving people committed to the defense of liberty wherever it is in jeopardy. I believe that God will not hold men and women in uniform responsible as agents of their government in carrying forward that which they are legally obligated to do. It may even be that he will hold us responsible if we try to impede or hedge up the way of those who are involved in a contest with forces of evil and repression. That's out of an April conference address by President Hinckley in 2003. Monty S. Nyman has written, The source of what the Lord had said was undoubtedly the plates of brass. So coming back to this idea that Mormon is quoting from something as he's saying this in verses 46 and 47. Nyman is saying it's undoubtedly the plates of brass. The ancients had been taught the law of war. There are two parts of the law quoted by Mormon. The lifting of the standard of peace is a condition presented to the aggressor. In Captain Moroni's situation, the lifting of the standard is recorded in the 44th chapter of Alma. The second part of the law of war is the defending of your families even unto bloodshed. The significant point of this part of the law is that you do not have to wait for three times to defend yourself, your family, or your personal rights. So here, as we come into verse 48, we're seeing that the Nephites are rallying. We've just been told that the Lamanites were fighting like dragons and were using strength and courage in their own right and that they were actually piercing the armor of the Nephites and um, smiting headplates into two. So here in verse 48 it says, And it came to pass that when the men of Moroni saw the fierceness and the anger of the Lamanites, they were about to shrink and flee from them. And Moroni, perceiving their intent, set forth and inspired their hearts with these thoughts, yea, the thoughts of their lands, their liberty, yea, their freedom from bondage. So again, this is not the first time we see Moroni doing this because we can guess, well, it is the first time overtly, I guess, but we can guess that he was doing that earlier when he told people in that quarter of the land, as the text said, when he went to Manti and inspired the people to defend themselves against the Lamanites. Now he's rallying his troops here with the thoughts of their lands and their liberty and their freedom from bondage. He was very articulate in discussing these issues and was able to do so in the heat of the moment as well. And we'll see examples of this as we move farther into these chapters in Alma. Here's a quote from Boyd K. Packer that could have been placed with the others that I just read about the justification of the righteous in going to war. 
He said, I mentioned another plain and precious insight that did not come with the first reading in the Book of Mormon. When I was 18 years old, I was inducted into the military. While I had no reason to wonder about it before, I became very concerned if it was right for me to go to war. In time, I found my answer in the Book of Mormon, quote, Ye shall defend your families even unto bloodshed. Therefore, for this cause were the Nephites contending with the Lamanites to defend themselves and their families and their lands, their country, and their rights, and their religion. Knowing this, I could serve willingly and with honor. So here we see the Nephites rallying, and there's actually a rallying cry that happens in verse 49. And it came to pass that they turned upon the Lamanites, and they cried with one voice unto the Lord their God for their liberty and their freedom from bondage. And they began to stand against the Lamanites with power. And in that selfsame hour that they cried unto the Lord for their freedom, the Lamanites began to flee before them, and they fled even to the waters of Sidon. How all of this motivation was communicated to uh, Moroni's leaders and then to the troops uh, during the melee and mayhem of war is hard to envision completely, but somehow he was able to do this, as were his leaders, and this great turnabout uh, was seen where the Nephites began again to um, uh, be successful against the Lamanites. So they're so successful at this point, and as we'll see in the final verses of this chapter, that the Lamanites are entirely surrounded. Verse 51, Now the Lamanites were more numerous, yea, by more than double the number of the Nephites. Nevertheless, they were driven insomuch that they were gathered together in one body in the valley, upon the bank by the river Sidon. Therefore the armies of Moroni encircled them about, yea, even on both sides of the river, for behold, on the east were the men of Lehi. Therefore, when Zarahemna saw the men of Lehi on the east of the river Sidon, and the armies of Moroni on the west of the river Sidon, that they were encircled about by the Nephites, they were struck with terror. Now Moroni, when he saw their terror, commanded his men that they should stop shedding their blood. It's clear from what we've learned so far that this terror simply would have been fodder or motivation for the Lamanite side if they would have seen that in the Nephites. But Moroni and his Nephite armies are coming from an entirely different place here. They're trying to stop terror and uh, not to perpetuate it. So once they can see that they truly have these Lamanites encircled, they actually stop shedding their blood. And this, of course, again, reflects Moroni's character and his leadership. Ogden and Skinner have written, Moroni's leadership qualities as a commander began to shine forth. He prepared his people for conflict in meaningful ways using technological innovations. He used two kinds of advanced intelligence. He asked Alma to inquire of the Lord, and he sent out spies. He was a superb strategist. He inspired his people when their courage waned. He was merciful, and he was a spiritual giant, which translated into supernatural help for his people. Thus, the advantages of the Nephites may be summarized as follows. Superior technology, better clothing and armor, better intelligence, better strategy, inspiration by a better cause, better leadership, and better connections with heaven. And with each of those betters that Ogden and Skinner are listing here, there are specific verses where that's described in this chapter. The Institute Manual says, Captain Moroni did not delight in bloodshed, even though he was justified in taking another person's life while defending his country. He reluctantly fought the Lamanites for many years, When he did fight, he maintained charity for all, including those on the opposing side. The record states that Captain Moroni stopped the battle on more than one occasion in order to spare as many lives as possible. 
Lives were taken reluctantly and with sorrow that their brethren were sent out of this world unprepared to meet their God, which is a phrase we'll read of in Alma chapter 48. Captain Moroni firmly believed that those who kept their covenants with God and met death would be redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ and leave this world rejoicing. Some readers may wonder how a man concerned with keeping the covenants of the Lord could be so involved in military affairs. This concern may be why Mormon wrote that Moroni did not delight in bloodshed and was taught never to raise the sword except it were against an enemy, except it were to preserve their lives. There have been several points, I think, in the Book of Mormon so far where we have completely marveled at the character of the prophets that we have read about. Nephi certainly comes to mind. His ability to withstand the persecution that was um, perpetrated upon him, uh, the, the time when he was on the ship comes to mind, when uh, he was so severely uh, mistreated by his brethren, and yet he still sang praises to his God and praised the Lord throughout the entire process. That was incredibly telling of his character. King Benjamin is another, I think, as is his son Mosiah. These great kings who had ultimate power over the people that they ruled, and yet they still tilled the earth and fought alongside their people. Then later, of course, Mosiah had the character to not continue with his monarchical rule and decided to change the system of government entirely. These are admirable characters that are showing traits that really go beyond the usual mortal pale. And Captain Moroni is among them here. It's almost unbelievable that someone so steeped in a culture of war and in the strategy of war could still have such pure motives. But Mormon emphasizes this over and over as we read, that Moroni is always anchored to his sense of cause. Well, here's some final commentary from the Book of Mormon Institute manual that kind of summarizes everything we've taken in so far. During his service as chief captain, Moroni relied on his strengths and the Lord's power to defend the Nephites. Alma chapter 43 is an example of how Captain Moroni blended his good judgment with his obedience to God's counsel. He prepared each soldier with improved military armor, and he sought the prophet's advice before entering battle. The Lamanite campaign was directed by Amalekite and Zoramite officers whose knowledge of Nephite military secrets and methods would have given them an enormous advantage over any commander but Moroni. Right at the outset, his foresight had robbed them of their first and logical objective, the buffer land of Jershon. He had taken up his main defensive position there, but when the messengers returned from consulting the prophet, he learned that the Lamanites were planning a surprise by directing their push against the more inaccessible but weaker land of Manti, where they would not be expected. Immediately, Moroni moved his main army into Manti and put the people there in a state of preparedness. Informed of every Lamanite move by his spies and scouts, Moroni was able to lay a trap for the enemy, catching them off guard as they were fording the river Sidon. And uh, that last point is a quote from Hugh Nibley. Captain Moroni expected the blessings of the Lord because he had given his best efforts. He was perhaps the brightest military mind of his day, and yet he showed humility by following the prophet's counsel. This made Captain Moroni a mighty instrument in the hand of God. Well, it did indeed, and we'll have the pleasure of reading Moroni's words directly as we come into Alma chapter 44. So for now, this brings us to the end of Alma chapter 43.
Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.